Good evening, everybody. Um, we are so excited tonight. Um, welcome. It is Monday. We are here with the 120 rundown. Um, I'm so excited tonight to have our guests, but first let me introduce um, two of my favorite people that are here every Monday. Uh, the always amazing Trent Garrison and the super fabulous Paula setzer -Kissick. I'm so excited to have them with us. Although the three of us are not anything <laughs> compared to how cool our guest is tonight. So I'm so excited um, to have our Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman join us tonight. Thank you so much, Jacqueline, for joining us. Um, and we're excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. No problem. Um, so let's just jump right in because I, you know, I'm sure there's a lot we can talk about in our time tonight. Um, but I think let's just start pretty easy. Jacqueline, tell us, you know, during a campaign, we hear a whole lot about the governor. Um, maybe not as much about the lieutenant governor, but I think your story is just as important. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up here. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I like to fly under the radar, so that's usually okay with me. Um, but uh, so before I jumped into this frying pan, I was a teacher mm -hmm. and I taught um, high school government at uh, Bergen High School is where I started. Um, also at East Jessamine High School outside of Lexington. And then um, in Nelson County, I became an assistant principal. And in all three schools, I coached girls basketball as well. Um, uh, so I have... Um, really been working to advocate for public education as um, someone who's interested in government and obviously um, works in education uh, for a living. Um, and uh, really, really was happy to see the entire state um, kind of stop on a dime and pay attention uh, with the um, interest and the create, creation of this group, the 120 Strong Group, um, that really garnered a lot of, of um, interest around, of course, the pension issue um, and many others as they arose. And so I was really honored to be able to, to participate in that and, and uh, to be a, a member of that group. And um, it's, it, you know, I consider all of you friends, of course, um, but I was out there with you with posters and um, my I called it my best duty coat um, on those really cold days. Uh, and it's in a way, it seems like it was only yesterday. And in a way, it seems like it was a million years ago. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, so a lot to talk about tonight, um, especially you are the Lieutenant Governor, but you wear many hats with that. You are also um, the Secretary of Education and Workforce Development. Um, awesome that's so cool to have a teacher there representing us one from Kentucky which is awesome um a lot going on in that area and big in the news is standardized testing <laughs> um i just noticed um a, a news article just came across my screen about or my phone about uh 20 minutes before we came up and it said that um I believe let me find his name so I don't screw it up Michael Cardonas I think that's his name I'm going to probably mm -hmm. um, first name is he was just named. Yeah. Miguel Cardona. There we go. Um, a Cardona has been confirmed as the new education secretary today. Um, mm -hmm. He received a ruling not too long ago that standardized testing from the Biden administration would continue as uh, planned. Um, this has sent a lot of people in a tailspin um, given the year we have had. Uh, you know, I guess it's possible that the new education commissioner could overturn this decision. I don't know. 
what are you all working on at the state level? Because I know a lot of teachers are justifiably very frustrated. Parents are very frustrated about this. What are you all working on at the state level regarding standardized testing for this year? Yeah, um, I think I share the sentiment of being in tailspin when I saw that. Um, and I, I will be the first to say I know I hold a, a political office and I taught politics, uh, you know, in government my entire life. Uh, but I just don't think it, public education is is or should be a political issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so I say that because I um, was really disappointed to hear that news coming out of the Biden administration. Um, but I will say this, I think with the, the new secretary being confirmed today, um, there is an opportunity for some dialogue. And I've already um, been in touch with uh, Commissioner Glass, uh, the commissioner of, of KDE. Um, and we are kind of working together on some points. And I plan on reaching out um, to the Biden administration um, as Lieutenant Governor and to the Secretary of Education as the Secretary of Education um, and, and making a case for why um, there is a much, 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 much better use of time and resources and money uh, than to send kids back to school and immediately start test prepping and, and mm -hmm. circle B on a standardized test and us call that, you know, an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, there is so much to be to be done um, with our kids. I mean, everything from we, we've heard um, a lot of, of cries about um, mental health and concerns for kids and the isolation and anxiety and uncertainty that all of us have felt over the last year. Um, and we know that test anxiety is a real thing. And I, you know, it, it would be it would be different maybe if the test was turned around quickly and you could use the data to inform instruction, but we all know that you're going to take it in April or May and you're not going to get it back till September or October. And what are you supposed to do with it then? <laughs> um, I, I just feel like we already know what the test is going to tell us. And so um, instead of wasting time on, um, and I hate to be blunt about it, but I do feel like it's wasting, wasting precious time mm -hmm. um, that, that we want to have, with our students in the classroom um, on, a, on standardized tests, not to mention the fact that so many schools are in hybrids. And so, mm -hmm. dear Lord, I was, the, I was the testing coordinator when I was assistant principal. And- A terrible thing. I was afraid, I was like, who have I made mad? Like, <laughs> who did I make mad to get this job? Um, and that was when everyone was in school and it was quote unquote normal. I cannot imagine trying to do that right now and how long it would actually end up taking. And so it, it's just a lot of mixed messages like, okay, well you, we're gonna, we're gonna require you to take the test, but it can be a shorter test and you can take it now or you can take it in the fall, but we're not gonna require you to report your scores. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, I'm like, then what's the point what's in any of it? Um, and I, I appreciate that they're not, even if they're gonna make schools test, they're not going to um, apply the, the public pressure. Um, that's a whole nother conversation. I'll have to come back from Monday night, another Monday <laughs> night on that one. Um, but again, it's not the best use of our time, money, and resources. We ought to be, um, I say we, but you know, we, I'm, I'm a teacher, but um, we ought to be having conversations with our kids and uh, meeting them where they are working with families to close gaps and wrap around services and 
all the things mm-hmm. um, that need to be done. Uh, and so I'm, I'm disappointed in that decision and I plan on advocating um, for Kentucky teachers and students and families uh, that, that we forego this. And so I'm hoping that the new secretary will, will have an open ear on that. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a great, that, I think that's great. Um, you know, I, I know trepidatiously thinking about high school, um, I can't wait to get in there and meet them in person and see, you know, what they react to in person and how their little personalities are and love on them and help them grow. And yeah, we're going to learn, we're going to do some education, but like, man, it sort of breaks my heart thinking about, Hey, by the way, you're going to be doing your testing group in, I don't know. Yeah. It's just a lot in a crazy year. So thank you so much for working on that and help to do whatever you can to help make this better. Cause that's a little overwhelming to think about for a lot of teachers right now. Yeah. Um, I have a couple questions that people sent in, so I'm going to kind of jump around and read through some of these. Um, so <laughs> you have finished your first year in office during a pandemic. Am um, I? <laughs> I don't know if when you were running, you pictured how this would have been and during your first no. year. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. What are some successes and challenges that have presented that maybe may or may not be unique to your job um, and to serving the state during this time, during your first year? Because it's definitely been a unique one. Yeah, so uh, so I'll be honest with you. It, it's almost been a year now. Uh, 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 March 6th, I believe, is the first day that we had um, a diagnosis in Kentucky of COVID-19. And so um, we're coming up on a year. And I remember when it first happened, of course, by the way, I was on maternity leave. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a baby on February 8th and uh, was thinking I would be back at the beginning of March. Uh, no, that didn't happen. Uh, so it was a very weird, it was very weird for me anyway, because of that. Um, but then also, um, you know, you think about when you run for office, all of the, all of the promises that we made and all of the initiatives that we were really excited about. Um, the fact that the governor, um, uh, named me as as the Secretary of Education and Workforce Development. Um, that was a conversation we had beforehand, obviously. Um, and uh, just the all of the opportunities I thought were going to be there after we campaigned and um, I feel like we had our finger on the pulse. We were full speed ahead and then bam. Uh, And it has literally been nothing but crisis management every day, all day, multiple crises in some cases. I mean, think about last week and the week before um, that have, that have arisen. And so that challenge was, it was really hard at first. And I was really, I was really sad because I thought, when are we ever going to be able to actually move forward? Right. That was my, that was my thing about it. Um, but I will say that along the way, what this pandemic did, um, and so many people in this audience are going to, are going to understand, but it really brought a sense of urgency to all the things we've been screaming about, mm-hmm. uh, for years. Um, you know, Paula is going to amen me on this one, but the digital divide, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, devices or broadband and Wi-Fi, whatever that is, um, you know, to see, um, you know, we heard for for the last few years, oh, the economy's great. Oh, everybody's doing great. And I'm like, well, then why did our schools have to hand out 100 million meals over the last year? You know, and, and our schools met, our, 
our kids and our families where they were, they delivered all those meals and they did all those things. And, um, you know, mental health has been an issue that we've always talked about. And now you hear it more and more um, being talked about more openly. So what I will say is the pandemic has given um, the greater public, I think, the same sense of urgency that we have had from the classroom for a while now. And so I do feel like this is an opportunity to seize that moment and, and to take all of these challenges and turn them into um, successes. And so one, of, one thing that we heard um, both parties, uh, people at all levels of government, they wanted their kids back in the classroom Right. And so this is the great, this is the perfect opportunity to talk about how, you know, we wanted our kids back in the classroom. So let's fully fund those classrooms. Mm -hmm. If those are, if those places are so important, then let's make sure that they have what they need. Mm -hmm. um, you hear about childcare and early childhood education and how um, that caused a mass exodus of women from the workforce. Um, and so that's another issue that, okay, so if everybody is, if we're all in on early childhood education, let's go, right? Let's, let's have pre-K for all. Let's have full day kindergarten for every school across Kentucky. And so I feel like those, um, a, a lot of those issues that we talked about throughout the year, um, this is our opportunity to seize that moment um, to be able to make those things happen. And so I've tried to turn it into, into that. <laughs> And, and just so that we could move forward. Um, but man, it's, it's been, it has been a whirlwind. Um, I, I told you all the governor likes to tell me that he thinks that um, at this point, you know, it, what else could happen? It's going to obviously be the zombie apocalypse. And I'm like, don't say that out loud. Walking <laughs> <laughs> Dead is set here, like out of Kentucky. Kentucky there's a connection. Yeah. Wouldn't be yeah. that out of the ordinary. <laughs> I love, I love, you know, I love what you're trying to do. You know, you've been handed a lot of lemons um, in your first year in office. And I appreciate the fact that you're definitely trying to make as much lemonade as possible out of what has been a very challenging first year for anybody, um, especially if you are a Lieutenant Governor. You touched on something in there and I kind of wanted to touch on it a little bit more. And you talked about the digital divide and I've heard some questions lately. So maybe you can talk about this because um, it seems like this is not super clear publicly um, because I did get a question about it, but it was about Kentucky Wired and CARES Money Act. Um, and I think there was a belief that maybe none of that has been spent to help expand broadband because virtual learning really did include a lot of that. So I'm, I'm honestly don't know the answer to that. So maybe you can help clear that up for me. Yeah, so the um, we utilized um, CARES dollars to deploy hotspots to um, as many K-12 households as we could across the state. So um, when we started uh, in the pandemic, there was a there was a gap of about 10 to 15 percent of students in Kentucky that did not have reliable Internet access at home. Right. And so obviously that creates a whole new set of challenges um, in terms of equity and, and other things. And I will say this, people often think that this is only a rural issue. Uh, it is, it's most certainly a rural issue, but it is not only happening in rural Kentucky. There are areas in um, the, the high density populated areas that also have challenges. So um, the the environment might look different, but the challenge is the same. Um, and so when we, I believe the number was about $8 million 
um, that we that we invested in in deploying those hotspots um, with the CARES funding. <clears throat> There's also, and this is like the you know the budget um, issues that go back and forth. Um, by investing either state dollars or CARES dollars, um, you can do that and kind of play uh, like a jigsaw puzzle and free up different pots. And so that's a lot of the reason why um, some decisions were made. I will say that the governor has put $50 million in our budget for broadband. Wow. Um, and that's obviously something that we, we really, really, really need. Um, and so whether it is, like I said, the hotspots or whether it is the last mile, which is, which is our challenge right now. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that we're committed to doing. I cannot believe that it's still like it's 2021 and we're still having this conversation. I just, right. I, it blows my mind, but you know, you hear all these people that don't work in school systems and they're like, what are all these kids doing in the McDonald's parking lot? They don't have Wi-Fi, And I'm like, welcome to teaching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think about like the kids that they would show up early at, at and come to my classroom and, and grab a Chromebook and do their homework before school started. Or they would ask if they could stay after school and do it. And like that just kind of was something that we did. Um, and it was a way to help kids. But most folks don't know that that's a challenge unless it's their challenge right mm -hmm. um and so this is something that that we're committed to we were committed to before the pandemic but again that sense of urgency has come since then which has been helpful right um and i think i think you hit a, I, I, i'm glad to hear that for certainly and i think you hit a note um that i was kind of thinking about in a couple of notes but like you know i think the pandemic kind of blew open the doors on problems we have talked about forever um such as overcrowding of classrooms we oh. a lot of places would have been able to go back already had because but because the classrooms are so overcrowded you know there's no social distancing so it's it's kind of interesting and then i think what a lot of people who aren't in school systems don't understand and i think you will uniquely understand because you you know have been um you know, the CDC's guidelines for schools reopening. A lot of times, um, it feels like a lot of times the general public will read the headline, CDC says schools are safe to reopen and they take that and run. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, CDC said it, it's right here. And I'm yeah. like, but did you read a little further down when it yeah. says, one of the big things coming out now is how important good right. ventilation is. Um, and that is kind of a success. And I see this, uh, this some like 16 people have shared the article with me. Look, you can just open a window and that helps. And I'm like, that's awesome. I float into four classrooms and zero of them have a window. <laughs> like, yep. So how have been, how have you been, how have you been navigate, helping navigate challenges like that to get schools, CDC, at least so we can take a swing at being compliant? Um, because it's tough in a lot of these older buildings. What has been your focus there to help schools meet those CDC guidelines? Yeah, and I and I will say that um, when I started teaching, I did not have a class. I did not have window in my classroom at Burien or East Jessamine until I got like to the last maybe two years. I was at East, and then I felt like I had arrived. Right? I like I don't think people understand that it's sort of a status symbol. To it is. Oh, it absolutely it is. Well, I mean, you might be getting ready to retire soon if you finally work up to that room. But. Yeah, like normally you would like pay your dues to you know be in, you know, to be in charge of your office. No, you pay your dues in teaching so that you can get a window. You can look outside. Um, yeah. So yeah, that is a challenge. And so what I kept, um, what I do is, cause we all know, uh, 
when you are um, in, in a, a decision-making role. Um, there is theory and there is practice, right? Um, and so it's, you, you gotta make the two mesh and that's where the rubber meets the road. And so when we would talk through, it would, you know, Dr. Stack and the governor and, and myself, and we would be talking and, and Commissioner Glass, we'd be talking through all of these different things. And I would say, okay, so if I'm a teacher, here's my concern. And when we were talking about ventilation, especially, I said, um, I would wanna know uh, what the line is between, school safety and uh, safety in terms of ventilation, mm -hmm. right? Because open. opening doors, opening windows, now we're dealing with a whole new set of, of challenges that um, are colliding again. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I just wanted to reiterate the point that um, it's, not a, it's not a one size fits all for um, every, every district in Kentucky, it's not even a one size fits all for classrooms in the same building mm -hmm. because of the different circumstances that they may be in. So I was like, we just need to, you know, my, my point was we need to be very clear about, um, you know, what the, what the priorities are and what, um, I guess leeway we can give for local decision-making because, um, at the end of the day, there's no way, uh, to, with one with one swoop, make a, a rule that would would impact um, every classroom the way that it needs to for school safety, but also for ventilation. And that's going to be a challenge that nobody knows the answer to that because nobody's done it before. Right. Um, and so we've just got to. I always say we have to extend grace um, through these situations, but certainly um, with something like this, it's going to take a lot of thought. Right, absolutely. And for anybody out there watching, when she's talking about the doors being open or closed, that sounds like a very silly concern, except for, I think by law, we are supposed to have our doors shut and locked in every classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, this has become an odd thing. This has become one of those, like, you know, sometimes you have to throw out the, <laughs> like, what you're supposed to be doing for what is actually right. Because, you know, I work in an older building. Um, a lot of times the heat and air aren't cooperating. And I, you know, I, know that sometimes you know, to keep it from being over 90 degrees in a classroom we'd have to prop a door open and throw a fan in it um that's not oh, yeah. unusual. how many of us have been in a classroom where the either the the heat or the air one or one or the other went out in the middle of the day right like it's it happens all the time yeah it's, yeah I feel like I've worn my snowsuit and like probably I think I wore shorts in one time because the heat was or the air conditioning <laughs> and I was miserable and I was like sorry everybody's suffering together <laughs> and realistically <laughs> How much money is there realistically to handle ventilation? That's an expensive proposition. Very. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Especially, you know, it's kind of like the more the building needs it, probably the more expensive it's going to be. Right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, truly like, think about it. If you have to replace the AC and, uh, and air, the heating and air in your house, you know how expensive that is. Take that, take your house times 50. That's a yeah. school building maybe. And like, Think about how expensive it is to there. It makes sense. Like it's just difficult. Um, these are not easy problems. <laughs> so um, yeah. I'm glad you were there and you were thinking through them because, and you have that experience of having been a teacher because my goodness, it scares me to think of what some of these things would have looked like without your guidance there because you do know um, that experience is so invaluable, especially right now. <laughs> um, Trent had a question or two, so I'm gonna throw it to him. Yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about with, with high school ventilation. We didn't have air conditioning until I was a sophomore <laughs> at our high school. So that was that was a, like a big deal in Leslie County. Wow. 
yeah. So, well, first of all, thanks for being here. It's good. It's good seeing you. Um, my question is about bills. I'm I'm involved in other organizations, Kentucky Academy of Science and uh, Kentuckians for Science Education, and we spent I think it was six and a half, seven hours last Saturday reviewing all these different bills. So it was a fun day. Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah. There are plenty of them. They're coming very fast. <laughs> so one of them I think that's uh, that's relevant on this call on this Zoom is uh, House Bill 178, and that's the one that limits the makeup of the State Board of Education and does other things to it. And so that I was just reading about it before we got on this call, doing a little prep work, and uh, it passed the House. I believe it was last week, seventy-eight sixteen, and it's uh, headed. It went to the Senate, and it's in committee on committees. So, uh, the, I, just reading through it, I was a little bit confused. What it, it says that you know certain board member, uh, you know the, the board members have to be of a of a certain political background, and you know certain demographics and all that stuff have to be met. So. When would those board members be removed if this legislation passes and, you know, they have to yeah. change that? Yeah. So first, let me say um, this bill uh, to, it essentially reorganizes um, the Kentucky Board of Education, but it um, does not uh, force anyone off the board. So every person on the board right now will complete their term. Um, and as they roll off, this bill will come into effect. And so it'll kind of stagger, okay. um, stagger through. And so for those folks that are out there, um, it's got some, the point that of the, that according to the bill sponsor, he says that um, he wanted to file this legislation because he did not want um, the, the Board of Education to be upended every four years or every eight years. Um, and he didn't want... Um, it to, it to be as political as it's been. Um, and I have to say that I agree with him. Um, I, I, and it, it was never considered a political thing until uh, the previous administration. And we all know that those folks were um, appointed to that board for one reason and one reason only. Mm -hmm. um, and that was to, to usher in an era of charter schools. And um, if you believe what I believe, um, charter schools will will be the death of public education. Um, they, they will siphon money off um, public tax dollars um, and they will go into uh, places that are not required to follow the same rules, do not have to be open um, to, the, to the public in certain ways. They can limit who they allow in uh, and admit and so forth and so on. Um, and so, <clears throat> When the governor and I were running, this is a promise we made. We promised that we would put people on the board who supported public education, not people on the board who would support charter schools in Kentucky. Right. Um, and so we reorganized it. That was the very first um, act that that Governor Bashir took. We were sworn in that you have a midnight swearing in. Nobody told the pregnant lady this, by the way. So um, that was real fun. But um, we were sworn in and he walked over to the table and signed the executive order and, and it happened. Um, and I will tell you that he's the, he tasked me um, with um, going out and, and basically building this board of education. Mm -hmm. And there was requirements based on um, uh, Supreme court uh, regions at large, but there was really nothing else that was said. Um, and I can tell you that, and every board, every board member would tell you this. Um, when I 
called and talked to each one of them. I talked to them about their um, experience in education and what their vision was for the future of public education in Kentucky, period, paragraph, end of discussion. Mm -hmm. I had no idea except for the two people who had obviously served um, in office before what anyone was registered to vote. Yeah. Had no clue. Um, and so uh, unfortunately, um, this kind of seesaw that it's taken um, has led to a, a point where we now are going to be expecting board members to identify with a political party mm -hmm. um, when the when the issue was to try to keep politics out of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so that's going to be a challenge moving forward. But the good news is, is this current board will serve out its term um, and then this legislation will will take effect and um, uh, move forward with the new board members. Okay, well, that's good to know. I, I read through the bill and I, I, I wasn't clear on that. So uh, it, it's good to have that clarification. Yeah, and uh, I also appreciate that the sponsor um, added a committee sub that uh, added the Secretary of Education and Workforce Development back onto the Board of Education. Uh, apparently, I was not going to be on it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I'm, I'm an ex officio member. So, um, but, but still, I just thought that was very interesting. But he, he was... He was good. He put it, he um, threw it back in there. So I'm happy with that. Okay. Well, I appreciate that answer. The, the other question I had was it from, from reading, it sounds like it reduces their term from a certain amount of years to two years and to one year for the student. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. And so the point of the way that it is worded is to stagger the terms. So um, that the, the length of, of um, the terms, Kind of falls under that issue of staggering people. Okay, and the the last question I have about this is, I was reading in the top and the bottom, and it sounds like it's a little bit of conflicting information about whether or not it allows an active teacher to be on the board. It, it, yes. Does it continue to do that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the original language, um, we uh, the Kentucky Board of Education was not uh, permitted to have any active teachers on it. Right much like if you work for an organization, you can't be on, also be on that organization's board and be an employee, employee of that organization, right? Like that's how a lot of people are, are um, a lot of organization rules. Um, two of the changes that the governor and I made was we added a, um, an active teacher as an ex, ex officio member. So they don't have a vote, but they have a voice. Um, and we added a student as an ex officio member. And that was really important for us to raise the voices of current teachers who are in the classroom doing the work every day, um, but also uh, of our students. And so I'm really happy to see that that's something that's gonna move forward because those two things have never happened before. Um, and this was, this was the first time that we've done that. And I really feel like we have a board that um, has, I mean, we have everybody from a, stu a student in high school to a for the former president of the University of Kentucky, right? Like, I mean, it, it is a, when I tell you this is a rock star board, um, we've got teachers of the year coming in our ears. Um, they're amazing. So uh, I'm really happy that we're going to keep the teacher and the student moving forward as ex officios too. Yeah, I am too. I think it's a great board. And uh, Dr. Lee Todd was on our program just last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for answering my question. I think we're all super impressed by Dr. Todd. I think I'm still impressed by Dr. Todd. <laughs> like, and we'll continue. Oh, yeah. He's just a yeah. fascinating person. Um, you know, 
when I first saw the names of the people coming on the board, I, you're right about Rockstar. Um, you know, people I've looked up to my whole life since I was a little kid, like Alvis Johnson. Um, yeah. I have just now been like, no, like, oh my gosh, like Dr. Aaron Thompson, who is another just amazing human, the more I get to like, kind of know about him. So, yeah. you know, from my perspective, you really did knock it out of the park. They are truly, truly, um, you know, focused on moving education forward in Kentucky. And I can't imagine they wouldn't be. Um, having a teacher voice on there was super important. That's one of the things I think um, everybody was super impressed that you and the governor did and made a priority. Um, you know, a lot of times sitting in a classroom from our perspective, um, it seems like decisions are made without anybody ever talking to us. And so um, having that voice on the board was super important. And I think that was a really good touch. Um, that you all added. So I'm Ooh, glad they're keeping those. <laughs> uh, in fact, talking about teachers, that's kind of where our next two questions are leading into. Um, I'm gonna read this one verbatim because it was it was very well written and, I, and it's exactly kind of how I'm wondering about it because I've had this concern too. I had a um, practicum student last semester who was student teaching this semester. Mm -hmm. So this question sort of in that vein, it says, I'm concerned about the ones who are doing their student teaching via Zoom and then not having a K-TIP mentor to go for help to for help and advice during their first year of teaching. So my question would be what's being done, if anything, to support these young and inexperienced teachers? And I think that's a great question. Um, K-TIP was cut out of our state budget a couple years ago and hasn't made a reappearance. Um, so what are, what are we going to, is there a plan in place to sort of wrap these teachers up? We know how hard it is. Um, <clears throat> Oh, As a special yeah. teacher, my life expectancy was five years. I've now tripled that. So if I hadn't been- Look at you. Right, woo. Um, if people hadn't um, been there to really help me out and mentor me that first year, especially through K-TIP, I can very seriously say it would have been one year. So um, do we have any plans in place for that? Are we thinking forward to next year, what we can do? Yes, and, and let me say that I have a, a former player from when I was coaching who she graduated- um, and, and really, I mean, I don't even know if I could call it doing her student teaching in the spring mm -hmm. and she's a first year teacher this year. Mm -hmm. So we have about, we were talking about this. We have about three semesters of student teachers um, last spring, this fall, and then this coming spring who've had not, um, not so normal. I don't know if there is a normal student teaching experience. Right. Not a typical. No. typical. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, so they don't have the typical experience. And so we've got to be mindful of that. And I've, um, I've looked at kind of a long-term um, uh, fix. I don't, I don't know if you call it a fix, but an adjustment to student teaching, because one of the challenges that I see is, um, you know, when we require um, our education students to spend an entire semester Mm -hmm. working all day for free. Mm -hmm. uh, we are um, really limiting the pool of who can actually do that, right? Yeah. Um, and so we're basically saying your family's income is going to determine whether or not you can be a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not fair. And so um, not only is it not fair, uh, it is really costing us um, some young bright minds who might otherwise go into teaching. Um, and so I've looked at um, the possibility of, and this is again, long-term uh, looking at more of an apprenticeship model. Mm -hmm. 
um, and, and thinking through how we might be able to provide wraparound services and, and things like that, the same things we do for our K-12 students, um, working, working folks through. So um, that is something that's long-term. Short-term, um, one of the things that we have looked at is, um, and I've worked with Aaron Thompson and Jason Glass on this, and Aaron Thompson is the president of the uh, Council on Post-Secondary Education, and then Jason is the um, commissioner of KDE. And we've wondered how we could get those three semesters of student teachers involved in um, the uh, experiential learning that we want to take place. Um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a, a camps, you know, school camps over academic camps over spring break mm -hmm. after school um, services that are provided, summer um, op learning opportunities that are created to both address learning loss, but also to, um, you know, to, to cultivate a love of learning. I mean, the last thing anybody wants to do is bring these kids into school and sit them in front of a computer and tell them to do test prep and take a standardized test, right? Like we need to really give these kids this experience. Well, um, that sounds great and it is great, but also teachers are they're tired, <laughs> they're exhausted. And so while some, some people may jump on that and say, oh, I would love to teach a STEM camp over spring break, or I would love to um, you know, create this project-based learning experience over the summer, uh, not everybody will. Mm -hmm. And so if, if they don't, um, there's gonna really open up an opportunity for um, these, these student teachers over the last three semesters to step in, but also it could provide them an opportunity to step in and be mentored mm -hmm. uh, through, through this. And so um, that's a little bit more of short, short term. And then of course the, the apprenticeship model uh, possibility is more long-term, but there, there is um, definitely conversation about this being an issue for our young teachers. And I worry, um, like you said, that there's no KTIP funding anymore. Um, and that we all remember what it was like going through those first years of teaching. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, they say that people are likely, if you're going to leave the profession, you're usually going to leave it within three years. Mm -hmm. I was going to yeah. ask the question, do we have any retention data about what's happened since that has basically been done away with? In the, so the no, I, I don't, um, I don't have any, but I would like, I would, Curious, I would yeah. like to see it too, because that would be really interesting to know. Yeah. So, right. Um, I, I love the, I love the idea of that, um, apprenticeship model, uh, you know, student teaching is, it, it, it's essentially free labor. I, um, I know when I did my student teaching, I was working as many hours as possible, um, because I still had to pay for car, gas, food, apartment, rent, all that stuff. Um, and so I would, you know, go work every day from eight to, and I would say three thirty, but that's not true. I was there till five, and then a student <laughs> literally change clothes in the faculty bathroom and run straight to work to serve tables, um, and you know, hope it was going to be a night where people tip good, um, and work until ten or eleven, get up and repeat the next day. It was a lot, um, and so I. I made it work, but I was young and single. If I had a family, that's untenable. So mm -hmm. I, I don't, you know, I think that's, I love that you're thinking along those lines because that's definitely something I know that has kept several people out who couldn't just, you know, put their income on hold to go become yeah. teachers. So 
um, especially people who are transferring careers. I think we can miss, get some more people in, um, you know, who come to education for a second career and definitely mm -hmm. those people who are working their way through college like I did. So I 100% applaud thinking down that path because that would be a huge help. Um, so one thing I want to ask about, um, what strategies, and this kind of bleeds into another one. I think somebody just sent me, sent me a one word statement that said pensions, ask about pensions. So, um, you know, this is how we all sort of ended up in this ball of wax was pensions brought us all here. And, um, it seems like we're sort of there again today. You know, there, there is the threat that new teachers coming into the system in 2022 would have their pensions adjusted. And I think that's causing a lot of people to be like, oh my gosh, maybe I should look outside the state to teach. Um, what are some strategy, strategies you are working on um, with KDE as the, you know, as the, to help um, recruit and retrain, retain, not retrain, retain teachers? Um, is there anything kind of in the works there? What are some things you all are thinking about? So there is, and actually there's going to be an announcement on Thursday, so I don't want to get out in front of that, um, but the governor and I are going to do uh, an announcement about um, the teaching workforce on Thursday. Uh, but I will tell you that in, in line with the pension conversation, um, it, it is beyond frustrating uh, to, to know that the same group of people who failed to do their job mm -hmm. in funding uh, state and uh, state pensions and, and teacher pensions mm -hmm. uh, are the same ones that are saying that the system is um, un, uh, unsustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know any investment uh, process where if you invest the way that you're supposed to, that it becomes unsustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's my frustration. Um, it, it's that you make these, these folks a promise um, and it's a promise of not having the, the highest salary in the world. It's, a, it's an understanding that you could go to the private sector and make a lot more than you're making uh, in your teaching job. And I don't think that should be exploited. Mm -hmm. uh, so often we say, oh, well, teaching is a calling and they, that, you know, this is what, this is what they want to do. Well, yeah, but they, they don't want to be disrespected. Mm -hmm. um, and I hear, well, nobody goes into teaching for the pension. And I'm like, well, nobody goes into teaching for the pay either. Are you just going to take away paychecks? Like, you know, it, that's not the point. The point is that when you, when you commit to a life of public service, uh, that we ensure that you have a stable retirement. It's, we're not living high on the hog people. Like, you know, they, they think that, you know, some folks would talk about it like it was, you know, just the a retirement to end all retirements. And I'm like, uh, no, it's just stable. That's all. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's frustrating to me, uh, for this to constantly come up and we have the same conversations over and over again. And we sit and listen to, to these folks try to, to convince us that it's not a bad thing. And, um, you know, to, to change the system, but let me remind everybody that, um, if you are a Kentucky teacher, you do not, get access to any social security at all. And so, um, you know, the, the fact that we would be utilizing, you know, what, what should be perceived or what is perceived as supplemental uh, retirement as the retirement uh, is, that's a problem. 
Mm-hmm. And it's going to, it's going to cost us when we, when we work to recruit and retain teachers. Um, I, when I was actually um, an assistant principal, I called everybody on the house and Senate education committees about this issue. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was speaking to one of them, they said to me, and I'm not going to tell you this, but they said to me, um, well, what if we don't change your retirement? What if we change, what if we just change the retirement of the people coming in? Kind of like, you know, and I was like, listen, I'm an assistant principal. So what you're telling me is for the second half of my career, you're going to make it so hard on me to be able to recruit good teachers uh, into the profession and to keep it and to keep them here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're not doing me any favors by, by doing that. You know, we have a pension system, fund it, um, keep the, you know, we say keep the promise and, um, and help us be able to re- recruit and retain the best and brightest. Otherwise, um, we're not gonna be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, I, I think you nailed it. I have nothing to add there. Um, <laughs> Trent, um, go ahead. I saw you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, I always try to throw in at least one higher education question. I guess it's my thing. So uh, I'm teaching some online college classes right now. Okay. Uh, and um, some students really thrive in the online environment and some really struggle, just like, you know, all the rest of us. I, I feel like I, I like it pretty well. I've, after the original uh, after the, I don't know, year or some, however long it took me to get all of my materials online, it took a while to do that. But once I got it there, it, you know, it's, it's not too bad. But not only are stu- students, you know, when they're transitioning from high school to their first year of college, not only do they have lots of other things that they have to worry about, but now, you know, during COVID and everything, uh, a lot of their classes are online. So just just kind of broadly speaking, what advice would you give to my students and our students who are you know first year college students, um, especially those who are who are struggling with uh, with learning in the in the new environment? Well, so what I would say is, um, you know, think about your freshman year of college, right? Like that was rough. You know, it's 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 rough personally. It's rough academically, socially. I mean, it, it's a, it's just this whole new world uh, that you have to adjust to. And on top of it, you again have isolation, anxiety, uncertainty about everything. And school is nothing like what it's supposed to be. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I wouldn't go back to high school if you gave me a million dollars, but I'd go back to college for free tomorrow because I had the best, like I had the best experience. And so I think about the kids that are not getting that experience. And so um, I always also always say that the continuum of education is in my household. Um, I have Emma, who is my adopted daughter, who just graduated from college and is trying to enter the workforce right now. Can you imagine? Um, Will is my first bonus son, who's a freshman in college. So he's going through his first year and his senior year was pretty much wrecked because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Nate is my second bonus son who's a senior in high school this year. And then Evelyn is uh, one in a few days. So um, everything from early childhood to, to the workforce is in my house right now. It's hilarious. But, um, you know, Will has has uh, had some of his classes online. Some of them were in person. They've did, done a little bit of a, of a, a hybrid on campus. Um, and so 
what is normal is obviously not happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those, one of the challenges with that too is is adapting to this higher level of academic expectations. Um, but I will tell you what has I, what I think we're gonna that is coming out of this, and we're gonna realize it um, at some point. Is students are just by nature being forced to be. They are becoming more independent. Mm -hmm. They are realizing the importance of advocating for themselves and and asking questions, you know, getting clarification, um, being a little bit more responsible maybe than they would have before. Um, And so I do think that's a positive thing that's gonna come out out of this. Um, For all of the quote unquote learning loss we hear about and you know, all of that kind of stuff, I do think that there's a a, a greater level of independence here. Mm -hmm. And so to be a freshman in college and learn that the hard way, um, I think is, is still a good thing. Um, I just hope their professors are giving them some grace um, as they as they adapt. But that um, responsibility um, and and learning to ask those questions and advocate for yourself is something that I hope they take with them um, when we all go back to whatever we go back to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I try to be more a little bit more lenient, and I hope other people are as well. One good thing we got out of this, we're all better at technology now. We can all work, we can all work from home if we have to. So yes. and have meetings. Yeah. So that's a that's a positive, I suppose. I, I feel yeah. like your answer. Um, I feel like you may have been spying on my class last Friday when we um, at the beginning of it we were talking about moving because my district is moving back into person. So we talked. I wanted to talk about all the awesome things they did. I was like, I don't want you to think about this time as a waste. Let, let, let's celebrate all the cool things you've done. One, do you ever think you would be able to do Zoom and all this and turn your lessons in online? And they were like, well, no. And I'm like, mm-hmm. right. And I was like, and you had to get up. You had to follow that schedule. You, you know, that's independence. That's responsibility. And, you know, we... Uh, I may have, you know, gotten super excited about, but it's true. Um, Our kids are doing things that we've never asked of them to do when they are in front of us in a classroom, you know, to a degree, we spoon feed a lot. So I I wanted them to recognize all the cool things they've done. And and I was like, give yourselves a pat on the back because it's a big deal. It's huge. So yeah, um, I I appreciate you mentioning that because it's true. It's very true. is there anything, we're getting close to the time here, so is there anything going on that you are super excited about in your world, um, either in the pre, under the purview of Lieutenant Governor or as, um, you know, head of education and workforce development? Um, anything coming up that you're super excited about that you'd like to talk about, or if not, that's fine? <laughs> yeah, there, there is. Um, so I have put together a, um, well, I'm calling it the virtual bus tour uh, for the governor and myself. And it's essentially a, an education job training um, uh, workforce development initiative um, package. And we're going to each region of the state, we're going to each region of the state virtually, and we're bringing in all of our partners in the education world, in, um, you know, on the business side, on uh, the employee and employer side, and we're, we're rolling out this package of all of the initiatives that we have um, right now, and, and um, whether it is uh, job training to upskill and and to elevate in your current career, or maybe the pandemic has has hit you and you want to um, you know look at a different path um, 
forward in, in the workforce, um, you know, whatever your situation is, we want to, um, you know, provide all of this work and all of these initiatives that are out there that quite frankly are really good, but I question how much people actually know about it because oftentimes we create it and then we just think everybody knows. Um, and so we're rolling out this big uh, education and workforce development training um, package region by region. So we've, we've um, tried to uh, partner, um, I guess, couple the specific initiatives that might fit better in certain industries that are in certain parts of the state. Um, and so we're going to be doing that very soon. And I'm really excited to be able to do that because, I, you know, if, if anything, uh, we want to make sure that everyone knows about all of the opportunities that are out there um, for job training, for education, for um, any kind of initiative that we have uh, that has to do with, obviously, making sure that people can get a good paying job. Big part of that, and this is something else I'm excited about, is the work ready, um, no, sorry. It is the Better Kentucky Promise uh, that the governor has budgeted for. And it is an expansion of the work ready scholarship essentially. Um, but it is a promise that anyone in Kentucky uh, who does not have, uh, you know, they, if they wanna seek a, a post-secondary uh, credential or degree, uh, two years. Um, Kentucky's doing the last dollar in model. So it's a lot like what Tennessee has mm -hmm. in that um, you would fill out the FAFSA um, and you would find out what federal dollars you qualify for, what grants you quote, you know, Pell Grant, and then whatever the, the gap is, Kentucky is going to invest that uh, yeah. invest in you to close that gap. And we want Kentuckians to be able to graduate with at least two years um, of, of uh, higher ed um, without going into debt. And so wow. that's in our budget. And so um, if that's something that you, that sounds good to you, <laughs> I'm going to encourage you to call your legislators and tell them to keep that in the budget. Uh, because that will obviously really help folks who are displaced because of COVID or um, maybe their jobs have gone to automation faster than they, they anticipated. Um, this is a great opportunity. Uh, for folks. And so that uh, Better Kentucky Promise scholarship is, is um, it could be huge for Kentucky. Um, and not to mention the fact that obviously economic development is created based on uh, the kind of workforce that you have. So the more college degrees that we have, the more likely we're going to bring a stronger economy and stronger businesses into Kentucky as well. So um, it's a win-win for everybody. Right. Oh, that sounds really cool. Um, I'm excited about it. I will be calling tomorrow because that sounds awesome. Um, Yay. Uh, so cool. Um, so exciting. Is um, checking real quick with Trent and Paul. Is there anything else um, that has popped up that we may want to ask real quick? Because we. I'd like to ask a question. Go for it. Okay. I'm going to preface this with the fact that I'm from an educational technology background. And one of the things I heard over the years was, you know, virtual schools, virtual schools, and so forth, which I never bought into as a wholesale kind of idea for education because of the personal connection. And if anything, I think this pandemic has shown us that people crave that personal connection, that education is face-to-face -face in the classroom. But having said that, we have seen children that have thrived in an online environment. And we have seen families who this does suit their lifestyle or whatever it is they might need. Mm -hmm. Is Kentucky or will Kentucky ever consider kind of a virtual school situation statewide 
kind of like they have in North Carolina or similar states, public education run by public educators and so forth. But is that anything that's ever been discussed? Well, um, so first of all, I would say I, I totally agree with you about that. And I think that speaks to um, regardless of what the, the method of delivery is, education is personal. Whether whether it's a personal relationship with uh, an educator themselves, whether it's a, a model or mode that that um, you prefer, um, it's it's a personal thing. And so, um, I, we have not um, discussed a, a statewide uh, virtual school, but also um, our hair has been on fire for a year. So I'm not saying that we won't, <laughs> but. Um, we, we were trying to get hotspots and meals and you all know. Um, but I do think that there is something to that, especially like, like Trent said, we've all gotten better with technology now. And so this may be something that um, moving forward, it may be an opportunity that we uh, look to provide uh, for kids to meet them where they are and, and to meet those individualized needs. Um, I'm certainly open to, to hearing more about it and learning more about how other states do it. I think that's fantastic. That sounds really cool, um, especially for the kids that it is working for, because there are several. I think we don't hear about them nearly enough, um, but yeah, I, you know, there's several that have really taken to this like a duck to water for sure. Yeah. The last thing I want to say is, is, first of all, thanks very much for joining us, Lieutenant Governor. We really appreciate you having you here, but I also wanted to thank everybody online who continues to um Give us good comments and good questions like Denise, Chuck, Donna, Susan, and and and, pl and plenty of more people who are, who are always there and support us. So we really do appreciate that too. Absolutely, thank you all so much. Um, so I think that is it. I'm excited about this announcement Thursday. I'm gonna pencil that in on my calendar to stay tuned too. So, um, <laughs> that down now. Um, Piqued our interest. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, it's nice to hear from you and what's going on because, you know, we, we do get to see you on the updates occasionally and that's awesome. But, um, you know, for our education minded people out there, this is, this is awesome to be able to pick your brain for an hour. So thank you so much for hanging out and um, letting us chat with you a little bit about what's going on right now. So Absolutely. I obviously consider all of you friends and, um, uh, you know, the fact that you all have this platform and you educate uh, the public and, and keep people engaged is, is priceless. Um, the civics teacher is happy about that. So thank you. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate an informed electorate. So, um, all right. Well, thank you so much once again for coming. And thank you, like Trent said, to everybody who's been joining us. Um, not sure who will be here next week, but I will let you know. We will let you know as soon as we have that down and um, hope everybody has a fantastic evening. Thanks again, once again, to Lieutenant Governor Jacqueline Coleman. Um, Thank you. As always, Trent and Paula um, from all of us. Have a wonderful rest of your Monday evening and we will see you next week. Have a great night. 120 strong. Bye.